0: Eight, seven,
1: six, five, four, three, two, one. Hello, it's your weekly optimism vaccine. I am, as always, not Steve Cuff. Uh, you, the listeners, are stuck with me, uh, Adam Myros, because Steve is moving. Uh, we are kicking off a new miniseries. We're going back to Hong Kong uh, once again. And uh, as opposed to our, our previous Johnny Toe series, uh, I'm entirely out of my depth here because there's, there's no easy uh, crutch. There's no Western analogs with Mr. Choi Hark. Uh, Lord knows if I even pronounce that correctly. I'm, I'm a complete imbecile when it comes to this sort of thing. I, I know nothing of Eastern cinema. Uh, but that's why we have other people around. So, uh, we have joining us this week, a pretty full house. We have uh, Jack Eason. How are you doing, Jack?
2: I'm doing well, Adam. I think I think you're doing pretty well.
1: Well, you know, we haven't had to discuss the movies yet, so... Uh, <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> as true. host, I could just kind of throw to you guys and, and learn a thing or two along with our listeners, you know? a conning ruse. There you go. Uh, we also have Sean Glynnis. Hello. Uh, hello. Uh, verbose, as always, Sean. Uh, how's how's life treating you over there in Detroit?
0: Well, you know, box up, 3-2, can't really complain.
1: Well, hopefully uh, you're still happy by the time this releases. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we also have with us Jake Tropila.
3: Hey, you got my name right. Thanks, Adam.
1: <laughs> uh, well, uh, that much I can manage usually. You're doing well. Has there been a time where I've mispronounced your name? Tropila? Maybe in the early days, I don't know. It's possible. Well, usually I wasn't hosting then, you know, so that that was for the best. And we also have a very special guest, I believe it's Sean Gilman, who you may know from writing for the Seattle Screen Scene, Movie Notebook, Criterion. It's a real deal. This is a real deal. Uh, Sean, other Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, Happy to be here. Uh, We are happy to have you. I, I don't know how we pulled this off, but, uh, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. So, as previously stated, we are talking about Choi Huck, uh, and we're going to get started with his very first uh, directorial effort, which is uh, quite, quite the thing. Uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> the Butterfly Murders, a, a nearly incomprehensible film at times uh, about uh, murderous butterflies, as, as the title suggests. Uh, Jake, I'm going to give this one to you. What do you? What do you? Th- what? What is this movie? Well, you kind of said it. Uh, there's
3: killer butterflies afoot, and uh, it's up to the uh, the Tian clan to stop them, I guess, or uncover the mystery as to why they're killing so many people. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know what else. How else more I can lay it out? But uh, yeah, this movie is about killer butterflies. It's a very unusual film. I feel like in many ways this is uh, this comes across as like a B movie directed by Choi, but uh, it's got uh, like a movie imagination, uh, and at times it's just a sequence of great martial arts and action, and I really dug it.
1: Yeah, it it, it certainly is an interesting movie, especially for a debut. Uh, it's it's not something you'll see very often I, I i can't think of a movie that this reminds me of <laughs> it's just a very very odd thing I, I and very kinetic but i i don't know if it's the copy or what but what exists of this film that's easily acquirable online it, it feels like maybe there there's some missing footage and and the subtitles are a bit all over town but it, it makes for a, it's a disorienting viewing at times but Honestly, that might work well with the material. So,
0: Yeah, I think you just got to relinquish to the vibes uh, on this one because, I mean, what you're left with is just a bunch of great images.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I suppose to, to cut in on this one, just, like I guess if we had to characterize it, it's like it's a martial arts movie, but it's also a kind of horror-murder mystery, and those things don't happen that often. I mean, I, you know, in watching Hong Kong cinema, there's lots of martial arts movies. There aren't as many martial arts horror movies. There's a few like Human Lanterns, uh, you know, and a few that kind of like overlap with it here and there, but it's not, it's not like a mainstay. And certainly in 1979, when this was made, it's, it's, it's pretty peculiar, and there's a, an enormous. It's it's a horror, murder, mystery. So there's a lot of intrigue, and there's a lot of characters. Which, as Adam says, with the subtitles, it, it doesn't help to try and keep track of everyone moving around. But definitely speaks to Choi's outsized imagination. Like from the the get go, this is just full of pretty incredible set pieces and a lot of kind of um, kind of burn it all down cynicism too, which definitely marks his early work.
4: Yeah, for me, I see it as a, a, a twist on, on what is going on in, in the Wuxia film in, in the late 70s, I think. Uh, it has some analogs in kind of the late films of, of Chang Che, where he's making like these really elaborate costume movies with like weird traps and really complicated plots and uh, adaptations of uh, Louis Cha novels, like the Brave Archer series or, or like Tori uh, Wen's Films from around the same the same time period that are that are very kind of baroque and and bizarre, but he's doing it on a super low budget, uh, more in the style of like a Roger Corman movie than like a, a stately Shaw Brothers studio film. Well, Sean,
0: what was like what was Choi's involvement in in the film industry before this? Do you know?
4: Well, he had gone to. He gone to college in America in Texas at SMU and u uh, t Austin and then after that he worked in New York in television for a while and then moved back to Hong Kong and was working on working in TV there for about three years doing like martial arts serials and then this was his his first film mm-hmm okay. So he he had never had as far as I know he didn't have any like feature film experience but he had done stuff like this for television. Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah there's nothing else certainly listed. It's it's kind of I'm I'm sure that the IMDb records are not as thorough on on that side of the world there as far as that would be here as, as to his early credits. But yeah, there's nothing. That predates this which is uh, just a a wild (laughs) debut film especially when you see where his career goes um well anything else on this one jack you 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 have said precious little of of all people i have jack Mm -hmm. on the episode i'm uh, sure oh yeah
2: yeah, i'm saving it up no um it's it's a really difficult film to explain and because it really does kind of revert to a series of kind of cliffhanger reveals um and it kind of a peculiar i mean it's there's almost like a Scooby Doo element to it because we have carnivorous butterflies but and Uh, we have carnivorous butterflies where they turn out to kind of be a red herring, but there's also, they are all over the place. I think it turns out later on that the, like the pock marks of the butterflies are actually inflicted with another weapon. So maybe, maybe they don't eat flesh, but, uh, frankly, I'm not a hundred percent on that. Um, I think what's, what's worth, what sticks with me within the film, rather than like the intrigue and the, the constant reveals, which are, um, which are kind of like fun to sit through and kind of track but kind of difficult to relay back uh, without probably really sitting down and watching this movie several times over what strikes me i think is worth talking about is the conclusion to the film which um comes with probably would surprise a lot of western audiences people certainly if you're not familiar with uh hong kong cinema and i guess kind of the you know, hong kong to generically refer to kind of the heroic bloodshed kind of concept, but it's not really, this doesn't really fit into that mode either, but this idea that, you know, in a lot of uh, Chinese films, uh, great acts of heroism are tragic or they end, they're marked with tragedy. You know, it's not like the Western where the, you know, the hero walks away into the sunset with the girl. It's like everyone dies. That's, you know, a much, a pretty standard setup. And this film ends with, uh, Everyone basically just getting blown up. It's, uh, you know, everyone just gets annihilated in the conclusion. They stop the villain, but uh, everyone dies. And that's a uh, kind of a striking image, and it sticks through. We're not going to dwell on them in this episode, but Choi's early work is kind of marked by a lot of that um, kind of energy, particularly we'll, we'll talk in subsequent things about, uh, like, um... Was it First Encounters of the Dangerous Kind? I always get the title of that mixed up. I was like, Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind. Is that the correct one? Yeah, I can that's, never remember. That's correct, yeah. They, yeah. So, The Encounters are Dangerous of the First Kind, um, which is, if you've never seen it, is like a wildly anarchic film. Um, kind, kind of upsetting, frankly, uh, would probably be the best way to describe it. Um, this has a little bit of that energy to it. Um, kind of reminds me of like Chang'e. Uh, as Sean mentioned, those kind of like classic who did a lot of those heroic bloodshed stories but um just kind of modernized a little bit it just i don't know there's there's a strange b-movie edge as it mentioned that kind of like brings in like explosives and guns in a way that they're not usually integrated in these kind of movies in my experience um you know we just got a guy who's basically like a walking bomb and he just throws bombs at people and in the end the gunpowder goes awry and the whole thing just explodes Um, so yeah it's kind of that's kind of what sticks with me more than everything else all the plot twists is just that this is kind of a movie about grand acts of heroism and heroes doing brave things and in the end everyone dies and it kind of happens underground and probably no one will ever know what happened um I guess the scholar does he escape at the end he might he yes, might uh, he does,
4: write yeah. about it later the the narrator he before the end he just walks away like once he's yeah. solved the mystery he's not interested in how the conflict is going to play out so he just leaves and everyone else we see blows themselves up but the the narrator is just out there in the desert like surrounded by corpses with a butterfly
2: which feels like maybe kind of a a, a backhanded comment on intelligentsia and the kind of the the chronicling of a history they're not interested in the, the bloodshed they kind of they get their answer and they walk walk off and kind of yeah it's it's a strange effect it just feels very nihilistic to me personally because because most of the rest of the movie feels not exactly playful but kind of like somewhat light-hearted i mean you've got like the what's her name the green shadow or the you know, who who like float, yeah, green shadow or you know, who yeah. uh, were dressed all in green and just swoops in and out and does heroic things and you know, there's there's all kinds of stuff like that and then this is all for naught. Like, she just gets horribly killed, and everyone else does too. Uh, peculiar kind of a setup. Um, and it, not, I guess you wouldn't say this is representative of Choi's work, but it's, it's sort of, he had to start somewhere.
4: I, th- I think it's that anarchic streak that's that's most distinctive about him, and that it, it runs all through his career to to greater or lesser extent. No matter what genres he's working in, you can make a romantic comedy, and it'll end in like nihilistic violence or something. And it's it's just it's this attitude that he has that is anti-authoritarian that you see you see throughout his career and it's it's really apparent right from the beginning
1: yeah it's such a a unique and interesting debut film from uh, uh, directors proven to be very important obviously so it's something that would be nice to see restored at some point because uh, what what exists here is uh like i said it gets to be a little bit incomprehensible at times due to the various issues with with what's available um yeah about the time the thunders rolled in i was like i am not sure what's going on in this film at the moment but you know it uh, it kind of comes together it coalesces but it's uh it it, it is kind of probably a harder watch than it has any right to be just because of, of the way that uh, it's, it's presented at present, unfortunately. But, uh, nonetheless, I, am glad we watched it. It's a very illustrative starting point. And, uh, I suppose we'll move on to something that feels in a completely different league. Uh, Peking opera blues. Now this, this is, we're going from rough and tumble to something incredibly accomplished. So, uh, Jack, why don't you introduce us to Peking Opera Blues?
2: I was just lamenting earlier today that I think Peking Opera Blues might be maybe... Maybe the best introduction to Hong Kong cinema generally is like a concept or like the Hong Kong New Wave, certainly, which Choi-Hawk would have been a, a member of. Um, and yet it's a film that's not really easy to find in the West and hasn't been traditionally. It's, it's, you know, issues have crept out here and there, but it's never really been. There's currently no Blu-ray available officially in the in the U.S., um DVDs are hard to come by. Um it's it's this incredible it's like many of Hawk's film or Choi's films, it's it's really tricky to like to to elicit the the storyline, there's an enormous amount happening in this film, but essentially it's about three women from disparate kind of social backgrounds who find themselves wrapped up in a plot to assassinate a general at the start of the Chinese Democratic Revolution. Um and essentially, it's it's set in the background where one of them works in the Peking Opera House, and so there's a cover there from Peking Opera itself, and it's it's just an enormous amount of elements intertwined really seamlessly in this film um, of action sequences and drama of uh, slapstick comedy and grand tragedy set against a story of kind of political intrigue and also kind of a commentary I, like I think uh, Choi has described this film as like a satire on China's conceptions of democracy um, and it's a film full of where every bureaucrat is, is totally um, well, what we say like totally corrupt, um you know, kind of moving in and out, I mean there's a kind of running joke of generals just seamlessly interchanging each other, replacing each other when they leave when they were when they've like squandered all their money um it's just a really incredible film though in in the way that it balances all of those elements, and it's just kind of like uh. These three girls just sort of kick ass throughout to varying degrees with some help from some guys. Um, And just an enormous amount of stuff happens. And it's just a really entertaining film. I'm just, every time I watch this, I'm just kind of struck by just how easily. Uh, Choi marry so many ingredients together. It's it's a really incredible feat of filmmaking. And this is only seven years after the butterfly murder. So like it's this is he's made he made he was busy. He made several movies between then and there, but like he really was just escalating and wrapping up to this. You know, I mean it would not be unreasonable to say this may be his best film or maybe his most representative film, certainly.
0: Which is weird though, because also i think so this was my first time watching uh peking opera blues and i was kind of thrown by how narratively driven it is and how like yeah like how focused it is on on this narrative that you just laid out whereas uh something like butterfly murders that sort of like incoherency is not not necessarily because of like his nascent stage as a director, but we, you know, we see that through like another film that we're going to talk about next, but also, you know, through like time and tide, uh, many years later, uh, very hard sometimes to figure out what is going on in the plot if you are, you know, determined to do so. Um, so I, I, I'm curious, like I've only seen like eight joy films, but I'm curious why, uh it would be representative um not saying i disagree but i just don't uh don't have as good of a grasp probably
2: well i think it marries in with say his historical epics like once upon a time in china oh, sure, he, sure. he's he's very and and in his later career as well he's very much concerned um with chinese history and chinese nationalism and he's clearly an advocate for chinese nationalism he has a a a picture of kind of how china can unite and assemble um, and I'm sure there's many people who have extremely strong opinions on that, and I'm not going to get in there at all, <laughs> staying right out of that. But uh, he's, you know, I think his marriage of like narrative is is um, he he often has developed narratives in his films, but his his action sequences here are mm-hmm. pure joy. They're they're absolutely yeah. these kind of like incredibly deft kind of like cuts and small pieces of action that frame together to create coherent. Impressions of movement and the finale—I mean, literally, it's people, uh, not, it's not quite like a like a wuxia film, but people kind of almost flying, but they're they're more like hurtling through the air. It's more chaotic. There's a, something of a, a revision there. So you know, um, and you yeah, also have like the
0: comedy and the romance coming in and out as well, which are also yeah. I mean, yeah. They, they
2: straight up do like a weekend at Bernie's bit at <laughs> some point. Like this, it's got it all. It's this is something for everyone.
3: This yeah, this might be um, between this and Green Snake. This might be my favorite of the ones that we watched uh, for this uh, session.
1: <laughs> Green's wow, that that's stunning to me. Between this and Green Snake, two, <laughs> two very similar films. <laughs>
3: I mean, I, the just at the at the risk of sounding like a philistine, I I do often have difficulty trying to follow what's going on in a Troy Hawk film. Um, but at the same time, I am never any less than just invigorated by what i'm watching he just has a mm-hmm. way of making movies seem like he's making the best movie ever made and this is just such a remarkable feat just like the 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 bulk of the action that takes place at the, the opera house and like like jack mentioned chaos but it's also just like a very precise and controlled chaos and he has just such a wonderful wonderful form and in, in control over uh, like everything as it Unfolds, and the the three women are uh, fantastic, uh, especially uh, Brigitte Lin. Uh, I I'm quite fond of after this film, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's sensational filmmaking.
4: Yeah, I I I, I agree. <laughs> uh
1: yeah, no, I, I I'm with you on that. This is a uh, I don't know. I you guys said this one. This one feels i mean certainly there's a level of chaos at, at inherent to all of his work but the, this feels much more restrained to me like I, this is not a film i had any real trouble uh, following at any point i i thought it was familiar in many ways it, it feels like the most western friendly film of, of the yeah, lot we've on here Yeah, like, it it doesn't feel... And
2: ironically, it isn't exported.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not a a narrative that's, like, distinctly difficult to uh, embrace. It's something we've seen plenty of times before, you know. This would be something that could very easily be, like, a a World War II film made in America. Like, that's the sort of thing that we would apply that pastiche to. But uh, And there's also a lot of heist elements to it it, it just it, it all feels like something i've seen before which is not that, that's not degraded <laughs> in any way it's executed marvelously and it is as a package perhaps not like anything i've seen but it is It's familiar it's readable to a western audience this isn't a movie anywhere near uh, some of these works uh, like jake said they they can be difficult to parse at times and, and just visually, he's his camera movements are so chaotic and, and rapid and everything is just kind of coming at you at all times and it can be disorienting. But this this one in particular, I, I did not find that to be the case with, even though there's always something strange going on in the plot. But it was very easy for me to kind of follow everything he was going for with this. Uh, I think the,
4: the, the chaos in his films is... Chaos—I don't think—is quite the right word because it's all under control. I think it's his sure. movies move faster than uh, than we are used to, and and certainly by by Hollywood standards. And it's just because he has so much he wants to do, and his his uh, directorial mind, if you will, just moves so quickly that it, it's hard to keep up with him. Like, we're, we're, we're not... You, you mm-hmm. watch a Hollywood movie where there's, like, uh, rules where you have to repeat everything three times so the audience doesn't get lost. Uh, mm. uh, Troy Hart doesn't do that. Like, he, he will say one thing and then move on to the next and the next and the next and the next and, the next and, and you just have to keep up the best you can. Uh, it does make the films... Uh, uh, better on rewatching. Like from, every time you watch it, you get something else out of it because there is so much in the films mm-hmm. in the films to watch and enjoy. Uh, I I think *Peking Opera Blues* is probably like his most uh, uh, perfect movie. If if there's a difference between that and his best movie, like I, I think it's it's fully formed with no with no loose ends with nothing dangling out. It's just it's it's an ideal film.
2: I was curious um cuz w- the one thing that I'm looking at within this film is um the Peking opera element itself and Peking opera obviously has a it's a hugely rich tradition and also a lot of our biggest Hong Kong stars came from the tradition, like Jackie Chan, Sam Hong, and Yun Biao, all this came out of Peking opera training schools. Um, and I believe Peking opera was kind of having a resurgence in China around this time or having been banned uh, under, I think the Mao had forbidden it or pushed it down that it was, it was old. It was kind of the old China and he was trying to build a new China um so I'm I'm not sure if there's a an attempt here if Choi is specifically trying to re-enervate the Peking opera element, but I'm I, it's something that's kind of interesting to be watching this time is I'm I can't tell how exactly the Peking opera framing enervates or or interlinks with the main story. Because the main story is a essentially like a nascent political revolution trying to Topple, you know, trying trying to unite China under a, and a democratic uh, ideal, which I believe ultimately failed, and the film says it failed. I believe it failed. It's twice. A postscript.
1: A postscript. Yeah, By yeah, the way, yeah, this yeah, was so, all for
2: nothing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which you know, again, kind of, I think, plays into that kind of element within. Choice films that there's there 's often a great amount of struggle, and the the results are not optimal for the characters and um, but it also ends with a peaking and it opens with a peaking opera figure and full makeup laughing and there's there 's almost like a sense of the fates kind of laughing and i i, I don 't know if uh, if anyone Sean perhaps has any kind of insights on the peaking opera side of this if there 's any kind of recognizable touchstone to that or if it 's just sort of the Colorful background than it is because I mean it's it's always fascinating to watch. I'm not complaining. I'm just curious. Well, I think it. I think it ties oh, in He
0: meant.
4: The- he meant me. He. Oh, he <laughs> Uh, Well, I'm going to talk anyway. Uh, I I think it ties into uh, the performative aspect of of the spy story. All the characters are taking on different roles. And there's the performative aspect of the gender roles in the film. There's the, the woman who wants to act on the stage but isn't allowed because only the men can be on the stage, even for the women parts. And also Bridget Lynn's character, who dresses as a man, even though she's a woman, uh, ostensibly just because it, it uh, makes life easier for her, people treat her with more respect. Uh, but also, and but also, I think that ties into to Choi's anarchic view of of Chinese politics, where all of the the various uh, people who are in power in the city are just kind of performing power, and really they're all about their own greed and satisfying their own material ends not any actual you know good for society so i think uh the the uh the guy laughing at the end of the film the the picking opera actor is just kind of mocking us for our uh beliefs basically our our politics and what what he finds and what the only uh kind of real thing in the film are the relationships between these these five uh, heroes, the the three women and and the two men, and the the way they come together to to help each other out in order to capture the macguffin and do whatever they're going to do, and then how they they all leave at the end saying they'll meet again and you know that they never will.
1: Yeah, that seems to be a running thing where you he'll establish these these groups and you always have these preconceived notions of where these relationships are headed and. and in multiple films, it, basically the resolution is, well, they just kind of dissolve, you know. These, these people don't even see each other anymore. <laughs> you spend the whole movie kind of like rooting for them and, you know, shipping perhaps even in, in the modern nomenclature here. But it, 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 it's, it's like Troy Hark is just like, ah, no, fuck you. <laughs> this was just a moment in their lives and, uh, you know, not, it, it's over for you and it's over for them and we're moving on.
4: Shanghai Blues has a a very similar ending. I guess you guys are going to talk about that next week or in a couple weeks.
1: I don't know. Ask (laughs) Sean.
2: We we will, yes. And Shanghai Blue also has another performance by Sally Yeh, who is, again, like Jake mentioned, the performances in this are really... I, I just I don't know how anyone couldn't love this movie just you know to watch and particularly like Bridget Lynn and Cheryl Cheung and Sally A. as like the three the three kind of tiers holding this thing up and they are just fantastic and this this always brings me back to you know the people talking about how like you know Mad Max Fury Road invented kick ass women. Uh, it's like it's like every twenty years Hollywood throws women a bone of like, you know, here's an action character and everyone latches on, it's like, oh, we're finally through it and it's never actually tr- through it. Meanwhile, like Hong Kong, it's like churning out like Girls, like after after girl yeah, with, with like just women <laughs> kicking the shit out of everyone and taking like forging history. Although, I guess this movie they don't quite forge history, but that's separate matter, you know. But it's this is just such a great film about that, and um, yeah, I it, did. And it's just it's unfortunate that it is not an easy film to find, just generally. And it's it seems strange that it, um as I say, I feel like this is just very representative of Hong Kong cinema and how it marries particularly comedy and tragic elements in the way that it kind of, I think a lot of people who kind of venture into Hong Kong films can have a difficulty you know, kind of parsing where it can go from lit, like literal slapstick comedy to a main character being like horrifically murdered, um, like literally, like at the flip of a switch. It's like this. It's a very kind of like, um, kind of violent veering between emotions, and this movie doesn't really really well and, and kind of marries it really well but uh, we're much more used to uh, films that travel west are always like you know the John Woo kind of like gun toten action swagger gangster movies and so on which are also a lot of them are really great uh, and Troy Hawk produced several of them um, but it's sort of strange to me that this movie which has which so epitomizes so much of that to me, and has these three women in their leading roles is like Persona Non Grata in in Western, the Western canon, and I'm just hoping maybe that will like fix at some point.
4: Uh, it's it's weird because at one point this was one of Choi Hart's better known films in the West. Uh, like when uh, Interesting. when there used to be repertory films, I, I I feel like this was a staple of like the Hong Kong repertory film oh, Wow. Uh, when I when I first started watching Hong Kong films, this was like one of the first titles I heard. Is I don't know if it just played New York a lot, so people were talking about it, or what. But that has definitely in the DVD era uh, changed over the last 15, 20 years. So. Seems like the VHS.
2: Like I I know I'm someone just having to mention earlier today to me on Twitter that they saw like the VHS going for crazy prices when VHS was still the standard and then in dvd it's just sort of you could spend crazy money on them now but it's there's no reissues it's not like um you know there's other hong kong movies that are like kind of pretty steadily are reissued normally in a bad edition hong kong movies not generally treated well i I find but like you can always pick up a copy of the killer or hard-boiled or um yeah, I'm trying to think of like your most generic kind of like Jackie Chan movies and things like that. So it's it's on the home video era. It just feels like this is really slipped through, and that's that's really interesting. Because um, God, I just, I'd love to see this in cinema. Someone should bring that back.
1: Yeah, yeah it right. is odd. You wonder if it's just like a tonal balance thing that keeps it from like fully connecting with Western audiences. If it, if it did kind of have that early push, because I don't know, it feels almost like something you would see nominated for best foreign picture or something of that nature like it it just feels accessible to a traditional sort of prestige audience and it is fun and it also has that tragic element that you know the the oscar voters are always looking for uh perhaps you know maybe if it had just ended with the the prisoners being executed then then we'd have ourselves a real american uh, crossover hit but uh, that's not
4: I, I fear it's something as simple as it doesn't have a uh, bankable male lead. It doesn't have a Chow Yun-Fat or a Jet Li or
1: uh, uh, Jackie Chan. Well, that's a damn shame. Mark Chang is a handsome dude. They, should have, they yeah. should have been yeah. in this. Yeah, he's in <laughs> uh, Johnny Toe's election two, I think.
3: Who needs a male lead when you have Bridget Lin doing a cool little spin headlock to point a guy's gun under his chin and blowing his head off? I mean, that's that's just magnificent on its own.
4: <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, Cherry Chung herself is enough to, to carry a movie, and uh, she did. Like, uh, Patrick Tam in 1984 made a whole movie about her called Cherry, with, where every guy in the film is uh, trying to trick her into into sleeping with him, and eventually she just uh, leaves them all abandoned on an island, and it's hilarious. I knew all of the film. <laughs> I did not know that
2: was the... the... Locked. Yeah, now I'm gonna have to go watch that. Why? Why wouldn't I?
4: Yeah, it's 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 terrific. She's amazing, but but that's like the sad state of of Hong Kong film distribution in in North America.
1: uh that is sad because this is a, an excellent movie, and uh, for listeners interested in this little venture we're doing here, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a better jumping off point than than *Peking Opera Blues* for Choi Hark. Ah. Uh, but uh, if you'd like a worse jumping on point, uh, let's move on <laughs> to to perhaps the most inaccessible uh, film we covered here uh, for Western audiences, uh, except Jake, <laughs> apparently. Jake was really, he's really into like Buddhist I'm with myth. Jake <laughs> on this one, Adam. Yeah. yeah. Who says yeah. that he's to be accessible? Those. Those. I, I'm not saying I dislike this film at all. It is, but accessible, it is not. My word. Uh, Green Snake is what we're talking about. 1993. Uh, This is a a totally gonzo film uh, about uh, two snakes who become women and uh, fight a a mean monk. Uh, (laughs) Jake, you love this. You you loved it.
3: Why? Um, Because, uh, again, this just is the, it's the the Troy Hawk element that every shot or sequence, it feels like it's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Uh, I, I can't, there are times where I can't make heads or tails of it, but I didn't say that the, the between this and Peking Opera Blues, it was the most successful film. I think between the two, it's the best films that uh, we watched for this session, and just the again, just, it, it's like just such a vibrant and just f- like fucking outstandingly put together film where you have like two snake demon ladies who are doing battle with a flying monk in the sky, and he's got this giant surplus that he's trying to cover him with and he moves a mountain and it's just going to devolve into me describing all the cool shit that happens in it. But, um, yeah, I, I just, yeah, I, again, this just is, it's just such a stunning film, both just to watch yeah. and experience and you really just kind of go with the vibe or, or you don't, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I think
0: it's, I think it's, uh, an overwhelming movie, uh, or at least was for me, um, where it, yeah, like I, I've never seen anything like this, <laughs> and uh, in like the most positive way. Uh, and I, I mean, I really look forward to, to revisiting it and trying to parse it, or, or just like, I mean, it makes such a difference. I knew that it was going to be something wild, but like, it's totally different than than what I, I could imagine. But I'm excited to like now that I have that landscape to like go back to it uh, down the line and, and really kind of live in it. Um, but. Yeah, there's just so much going on that you, like, I can't figure out how it's happening. I can't figure out, like, how this was visually happening on what I assume is not a very large budget.
3: There is that wow factor, like, you're just, like, I'm just stunned. I'm like, how did they, how did he pull this, any of this off? and and in it's also very
0: sensual as well and like that sort of like uh slimy (laughs) sensuality obviously because the snake and it's like it's ridiculous um too and it's just like making it uh with such like a a straight face uh it feels like like there's so much sincerity
2: i suppose it's worth pointing out so i mean probably the the foundation is, is probably one of like the key Chinese folktales about the white snake uh, who has a sister or friend, the green snake, and they strive to become human, and they challenge a... or the white snake falls in love with a human, and there is a monk who is very concerned with propriety and with kind of, you know, the the balance of nature and everything. Uh, And it's a very ancient folktale that's kind of apparently gone through several reiterations. This is based on a novel, um, that was published, I think, just a few years before the film. Uh, that specifically keyed in on the green snake, um, which the folktale is more concerned about. The white snake. the The green snake is a younger, less experienced uh, spirit. And it's about uh, Chinese folklore, as for animal spirits who who try to become human, who try to uh, perfect themselves uh, spiritually to attain human qualities and they can trick humans to appear human and so on. Um, and so this is focusing on the green snake specifically is inexperienced and is more prone to animal lusts and animal impulses. Um, and the film is essentially, I guess overall about, you know, what it is to be human, um, and the, the kind of balancing act of, uh, high and low, uh, morals or impulses i suppose and and again it's another film that ends in a in a terrible chaotic tragedy um but yeah, I I suppose assuming Chinese people are all just incredibly familiar with this story, uh, this film probably isn't that confusing to them. But it is uh, a hugely it gives itself over entirely to the sensory. It's it's uh, absolutely a film of kind of glances and kind of um, just people moving through spaces and doing things. There's this wonderful. A uh, choice ability to just kind of like uh, realize his, his wildest imagination on screen in ways that aren't particularly complex or don't appear that complex i mean he can just do an enormous amount with like a a goofy prosthetic kind of tail and a couple of cuts uh he just does there's what a point where where maggie chung playing uh, green snake just wraps herself her legs around a tree like her human legs around a tree like a snake and it's it looks ridiculous and yet it also has this incredible kind of corporeal reality in the film and that's just sort of that balancing act that Choi manages and um, it's just this really vivid incredible sensuous film and it's really a film about uh, love and about sexual loss and uh, impulses, and the monk are are the enemy. Is not uh, the the enemy is like a, a really spiritually attuned monk. He's he's not a bad guy traditionally. He's not like out with villainous impulses. But he has done so much to push aside his own human desires that he has become dangerous. And the film is kind of about the balancing act between green snakes, jealousy, and sexual mores versus the this monk's. Um, you know, purity gone wild. The <laughs> more he kind of he 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 pushes against these these impulses, the point and can't accept because you know because Green Snake basically makes the monk want to have sex with him, and he's really mad about it. That's like a key point in this film, uh, and he can't handle it. And so his his purity kind of he he becomes prideful, and he meets out more destruction. And it's a kind of like impulse, that circle of of destruction between these people fighting with each other, but all rendered in this. Incredibly imaginative fold. It's sort of like, um, God, I don't know how you would even describe it. It's like a Rushmore, you know, like Max's insane theatrical staging of like Apocalypse Now, like on a stage. It almost feels like that, but like blown out to true cinema magic. It's just this incredible, like tactile and yet mm-hmm. like fleeting, beautiful kind of soft cinema. It, it really is incredible.
4: Yeah, I think this is, uh, Weirdly enough, while it's like this really crazy fantasy wuja that's all about horniness, it's also, uh, I think it's Choi's most anti-authoritarian film, like it's his most successful anarchist statement about the world and about the hypocrisy of institutions and this monk that that terrorizes them because humans and demons shouldn't mix or uh, being turned on by Maggie Chung as some kind of uh, horrible crime. Uh, I think in the last, the last 20 minutes or so is just some incredibly evocative imagery, like the, the monastery where the monk uh, kidnaps the, the boy who's fallen in love with Joey Wang and, and puts him in there and the monks uh, put a, a spell on him where he can't uh, see or hear or speak. Uh, just this idea of religion as, as uh, like a re-education camp that forces you to block out uh, the world around you and sensation and all human feeling it's uh it's really striking it and, and seems very very angry for a movie that is in large parts about uh you know maggie chung being really sexy
1: <laughs> it is about that as well though you know but let's not forget uh it is a, a strangely erotically charged film for for something that's almost like a morality play in ways but it is uh yeah, I, I don't mean to sound too down on this. I I enjoyed this. The only film that I was, I would even say I was at all down on was probably Butterfly Murders because I just think it's kind of all over town, <laughs> and a lot of that may have to do again with with what's available to Western audiences right now. Uh but no, I I think this is is quite interesting. It, it's just something that I feel like I I have no business talking about it. I I don't have enough like. <laughs> Uh, understanding of the culture to even know what the hell's going on with half of it, 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 it i mean yeah. plot wise it, it's pretty easy to follow and then thematically sure you can draw all that out of it but but it just feels incredibly foreign you know it it, it just doesn't read to uh, uh it's not there's nothing familiar here for western audiences really i would say uh, and I mean, there are baseline themes that run through and that that keep it enjoyable, but I don't feel... I, <laughs> I feel like trying to speak at it with any sort of authority <laughs> or expertise, uh, I would sound like a complete imbecile, so... <laughs>
2: It's true. I, I guess when you start off with like, it's about these two snakes who are human and want to become more human, uh, that probably loses you. Like, that's like Disney, but this is not like Disney at any other point. They're not anthropomorphic snakes or anything. They are mostly women. Uh, and it's... Again, this is something I hate. Like I don't like to be that guy, but you know the way this other people's like you've never you've never seen a movie if you haven't seen it on a big screen. But I will say I have I have been lucky enough to see Green Snake on a big screen, and it really it it really is incredible. Like blown up big, you know. It, there's something about the way the film moves and just kind of overpowers you. It is such it's so just busy and and immense in its ideas and watching it on a small screen like it's still like I kind of I can register like oh yeah this is really good this looks amazing but it's, it's almost like this like this movie if you're if you're processing it like and kind of working along with it it's like it should just be overpowering you it should just kind of like just flatten you which is what it did to me when I saw it on a big screen I was just sort of sitting there going like oh and that was kind of like my entire response was like, it's green, it's red, it's good. Uh, <laughs> like, it's just colors and swirling and emotions and... Um- and it's so yeah yeah it's it's just kind of hard to translate that I think onto the small screen it does it's one of those films that kind of loses a little something um, and still is fantastic it's still well worth tracking down but um, again this thing um, someday I'll win the lottery and I'll open a repertory screening somewhere I'll just have this running everywhere.
0: I haven't um, seen it on the big screen, but I, I just have a feeling I would prefer it on a laptop, actually.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, i do um, go with I a cell phone. phone yeah. <laughs> but, but no,
0: like, I mean, yeah, it is kind of like... Uh, I I watched this, like, two days ago or something. <clears throat> and it, it's like, we should we should be so lucky to, like, see, like, movies in general that, like... On one watch, are just like sort of like leave you dumbfounded because of how sensorially like terrific they are and and different they are and like just how like the diverse elements that he's working with here. Um, it, it's it it's a special thing.
1: Well, it's astounding for a guy who is at this point like fifteen years into his directorial career. Like it feels like and not in a bad way but it feels like someone's first or second film it is just so experimental i i'd say gonzo and i mean gonzo this thing is wild <laughs> it's not like anything you've seen it is just he's throwing everything at the screen like it is incredibly vi- visually interesting and overstimulating and it doesn't feel like the work of, of sort of a veteran respected filmmaker and in, in the best possible way <laughs>
2: I think there's something to be said um, in this movie as well. It's uh, maybe it's not the most like. ...advisable starting point for Choi... ...but I did find in watching... ...it's not... um, ...it has some big battle scenes... ...but they're not like Kung Fu... ...fighting kind of rapid movement scenes... ...they're kind of like big... ...kind of events happening... ...and magic and so on... ...so there's actually the little things in this film... ...like there's a scene where Maggie Chung... ...kind of like transforms into the snake... ...and kind of like moves like a snake... ...but still in human form... ...and kind of like curls and coils up like a pillar... And it's accomplished through a series of, you know, Maggie Chung herself, and then like a tail prosthetic, and then these cuts and close-ups and and different shots, all kind of like put together really quickly. Um, I do feel the film actually is maybe a really good primer for Choi's visual grammar. It, it's it's I find like a lot of the those elements are very are easier maybe to follow here than when he has like in Once Upon a Time in China or something, where it's like people doing very elaborate martial arts and then cutting the you know cutting within that because there's so much movement. Um, within that because they're moving so quickly and doing these really stylized movements. This is very much like what if a woman was bendy like a snake and went up a pillar and it's realized in this really cogent way through a very quick series of cuts it's so in a way this is almost i think like a, a useful film maybe to watch early on just to get an idea of like this is how Choi tackles a lot of things <laughs> not just magical this is how we tackle like people could walk into the room in a movie and it would be like realized through a series of cuts that give you just different vantage points and pieces of information and you just got to keep up and move along with it
1: Sure, sure, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I w- I'll also say, few directors better at using this sort of flowing fabric as an aesthetic piece, like he almost <laughs> uses that as a setting, and it is just remarkable at times. But this is, yeah, well worth seeing, well worth seeing. I don't mean to come across negative as I did earlier, you know, that's not that's not exactly what I meant. What I was saying is it's, it's surprising to me that this would perhaps stand next to Peking Opera Blues because they're just very, very, very different films uh, that being said, why don't we move on to our last film, which is a historical epic and also a like a bear trap safety video uh, we're talking about 1995's The Blade uh, this, is, this is a very violent film uh, I'm going to go to jack once again jack you like violence you, you probably dig this blade right
2: yeah yeah absolutely violence is cool um it's almost as good as sex so this movie almost as good as green snake uh, <laughs> this is um is to, to lay it out this is a remake of the one-armed swordsman which is Chang ches film from i think 68 which is kind of seen as like a pivotal hong kong movie, kind of almost like, to my understanding, I think One-Armed Swordsman is kind of identified as maybe like kind of a, a transitional to like the modern martial arts epic. Um, or the modern martial arts style of filmmaking. Um, so Choi is kind of remaking that and reworking that. But this is, oh, it's it's a remake, but it adds an enormous amount of new details and elements to it. It is not in all at all a retread of it. And essentially the plot boils down to a man who uh, gets his arm chopped off, And has to learn a new martial arts style based on having only one arm. And he does that and he takes revenge on those who did it and learns many lessons along the way. It is kind of an impressionistic martial arts movie. Um, This one more so than almost anything else that I've seen from Choi leans into for for fighting choreography, certainly into... um, incomprehensibility but like a measured incomprehensibility is this an idea that you can't follow the the fighting or the style of combat that it's so varied and quick and swirling and free-flowing um that the camera can't keep up and it's sort of a measured uh, kind of creation of that so where many martial arts movies would exemplify themselves by uh, making very complicated things uh, cogent and comprehensible this movie kind of leans into the, sometimes you're not exactly sure where you are in the fight uh it's very chaotic again as we say but it's it's chaotic absolutely by design um and it would have to be because this is just such a carefully measured um kind of sequ- uh, you know fight sequence and stuff there they're all every shot in this is beautifully realized. It's just uh, you may not know exactly where you are in this beautifully realized shot at any point. So, um, yeah, a really interesting kind of a re... Of a, cla- of a kind of a martial arts classic, and I think this speaks to like Ch- Choi himself has said that whenever he finishes a movie, he immediately wants to make it again. This is like one of his problems: is that he like he wants to remake his own stuff, and then he also wants to remake other people's movies. Um, so this is a big one. Uh, the One I'm Armed I'm say is, is a very a major title in, in Hong Kong cinema, and his version is a really distinct and unusual addition to action cinema and Hong Kong martial arts cinema itself. It's it's really, really something.
4: Yeah, I kind of see The Blade as a response to Ashes of Time, the wang White film that came out uh, a year earlier. Uh, Ashes of Time has uh uh famously very uh, kind of smeared action scenes uh, where you can't really follow the action; it's all very blurred with like these Christopher Doyle uh, 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 camera effects. Uh, but the choreography in *Ashes of Time* is really good. It's it's by Sammo Hung, and if if you filmed it like a like a Lao Long movie, you would see all of the the cool choreography that's going on. I think Choi does a similar thing in *The Blade*. Uh, he has uh, really accomplished uh, action directors uh, choreographing. Choreographing the fights, there's uh, Yuan uh, is who uh, is Johnny To's regular action coordinator. There's uh, Hoi Meng, who worked with Corey Yun and Sammo Hung, and uh, 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 Tung Wei, who's in uh, he has a small role in Hard Boiled. Uh, but uh, the way uh, Choi films it and the way he cuts it, uh, it creates this this sense of, of uh, you know chaos and, and fear and terror. That is just kind of endemic to the, the whole film itself, in the way that Ashes of Time is this kind of opium-dream, kind of blurry view of of history and these relationships among these these uh, swordsmen and women. Uh, in, in The Blade, it's this like dark, chaotic, extremely violent world that the the swordsmen live in and that their codes are supposedly supposed to help them sort out, but
1: don't really seem to be doing that. Jake, what do you think of this one?
3: I love the blade. Um, and I think going with what uh, Sean G. Illman, uh just said, um, uh, yeah, there's like a, uh, almost a, a sense of honor that these, uh, the swordsmen have when the, uh, like the film opens with this like, with the most ripped Buddhist monk you'll ever see uh, fighting off some, a gang and then he's later cornered and killed in an alley and that our two heroes want to, Assist, but they're kind of let down by by deviating from which that from their from their swordmaster and what uh, what they can and cannot do. But um, yeah, this is just a really stunning feat of action and choreography, and just like the final twenty minutes or so are especially impressive um, with the final fight between uh, our one armed hero and uh, what is the the. Steel Falcon, what is the guy's name? Just Falcon. The, the just head. Falcon, yeah, that's right. They have, like, this amazing fight that starts in their school that extends out into this courtyard, which is just a, a flurry of movement and action and editing. And uh, it's uh, it's just one of the most uh, stunning things I've seen all year. And uh, I love the, the very liberal use of bloodletting uh, in this movie. Like, I mean, you mentioned bear traps. Bear traps are, like, employed with every, like, in every scene, like it feels like there's a bear trap that goes off to snap onto somebody's limb, and it's just often followed by this arterial spray of blood, which is rendered magnificently, like just shooting onto a canvas. But um, yeah, this is a, an incredible uh, film. I have not seen the original, but
2: yeah, the the role of traps gets to speak to the original. The traps, and this struck me because in one armed swordsman in. Uh, Chanchez film the the kind of like gimmick if you would call it that is that there's a, this honorable house of swordsmen and they're really good at, it, at swords because uh, that was the thing you could do back then you'd just be really good at swords and uh, these guys come up with this kind of like pincer sword that traps the sword this dishonorable clan so it's like a specific weapon to counter Swordsman, um, and they trap. You can basically just trap their sword, and then they can't use the sword anymore. And then you can just stab them or do whatever. And it's kind of a recurring theme. I was actually just watching uh, Lau Garlung's Lung's uh, Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, which is uh, much later in Shaw Brothers' output, near the end of Shaw Brothers' kind of reign as the the premier. Uh, martial arts studio in Hong Kong cinema and it has pretty much the exact same gimmick Um, in this case bendy poles that can wrap around and trap a pole fighter or a spear fighter for the exact same purpose so it's this idea that you could trap the weapons and it's interesting in this that that we don't have that element but there are these series of uh, literal bear traps that catch people's legs and arms and and heads Uh, (laughs) everyone people do not fare well in this but it's sort of an interesting idea that I guess with the our our One armed Swordsman's developed martial art is this kind of swirling free form almost constantly, continually off balance kind of a fighting style he's um you know, always seems to be pushing to the limits of his own kind of physical capabilities in a way that's it's really accentuated in this um, to be essentially beyond being trapped. I I, I don't know. There just felt it's this um, a counterpoint to like the Shaw Brothers martial arts, which is much more classical martial arts. It's much more kind of a free, like a, a much more st- uh, kind of staged um, kind of like series of moves. It's much more kind of uh, obviously choreographed kind of series of motion and the traps play into that because they they sever you know the motions or whatever this is very much like a guy who has escaped the escaped that element of things he's able to move freely and completely despite his physical handicap but the film then also injects this um, sexual element which I think is also funny because the one-armed swordsman is made by Chan She who is kind of Comically anti-woman in his films is <laughs> like uh, if you wanted to sum up the like the career of Chang Chai's movies, it's pretty much that like women screw up everything, bros before hoes is essentially the concept. It's like every woman will ruin everything, and the truest love in the world is between two good guy friends, and that's kind of like that's all of his movies. Um, in this, it's Joy uh, introduces a woman who's honestly kind of awful. Um, in In the opening interest, she basically talks about how she likes to set these two guys that she sees as her power more she She likes to set them against each other and mess with them to see you know which one likes her more will debase himself or do whatever for her for her affections and uh I don't think it's any spoiler alert that um our hero just kind of doesn't end up with her he's got he's got other stuff on his mind um which again plays into a say this is not a straight retread so this I, I don't know there's there's all these tensions in the movie about duty and honor and romance and uh escaping or being trapped in by things be they literal bear traps or by an overbearing woman who's really misguided she's sympathetic uh, by the end of the film it's not you know she she's learning things herself. But, um, yeah, there's just a lot of strange tensions to this. And I think it plays back to, like Sean has has mentioned several times, kind of choice, kind of idea of power structures and how people can be trapped within them or can try and move around them and can be, you know, maybe put in a good show but end up being stopped ultimately by them or whatever, you know. And a lot of his films have people succeeding or failing to various degrees to uh, conform to social norms and it doesn't help them to do that. And then they try and escape social norms and then also may or may not help them. Um, It's kind of an interesting one. And this film is so fatalistic in its its vision of society. Uh, It's kind of difficult to determine how happy we should feel at the end where our, our hero does successfully kill a bad guy but <laughs> I don't, it just seems like there's many other good guys anywhere so who knows what happens next i think is there a sequel to this i don't maybe there isn't a uh, choice version i don't there are think are sequels so. to the original so yeah so i don't know we never know
1: uh yeah i mean I, I the greatest trap of all jack is revenge so that that seems to be where this is going up. It's got this whole. He uses these bear traps as motif. I mean, the film opens with a a dog getting murdered by a bear trap and, and really grizzly. It's this is a grim goddamn movie. Now, this would also be a hard a hard place to recommend starting off on, just because it is. It's most of his work is tinged with this sort of whimsy, and perhaps that sort of controlled chaos Gonzo nature makes it feel more lighthearted. Uh, even though obviously we've discussed this sort of cynicism that they conclude with generally but uh, this one kind of through and through is it's a pretty grim movie. Uh, I, it's still very enjoyable but again might not be might not be the ideal place to jump in on. I do wonder uh, you notice that Falcon's sword at the end kind of like splits in two and it's, it's got kind of a gizmo to it. I wonder if that is a, a complete nod to the original conceit you were discussing with the trapping sword.
2: Oh, could, could be. You know, I was just going to say, I think it's pretty good in our first episode of Choycast, We're like, don't watch any of these.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, you could watch all of them. They're all worth watching. But probably Peking Opera Blues is, is just the easy easy place for to recommend people to jump in on. Unless they want to go completely chronological, then enjoy your murderous butterflies. I think one of the, one of the
4: things that makes it hard to pick like a single Choi film to watch is that you can't really reduce him like that. He's got so many great mm-hmm. films. Like you, you I'd, would rather you know recommend like five Choi Hark films to to start with rather than than
1: pick out one. Well, Sean, that's why we're doing four full episodes of this. <laughs> exactly.
0: I I mean, uh, kind of a fun thing would say to to do all of his 1995 films uh together yeah. or it, i mean he did three or four of them i can't remember if it was fourth, but um and they they represent like just such diverse uh skills and also just like um a, a, it exhibits a, a very dexterous uh filmmaker with just like sean was saying earlier just a lot of ideas um and yeah they they're we're gonna get to uh a couple of the other ones, uh, later in this project, but, um, yeah.
1: Oh, there's a measly three 1995 films. Whereas if you wanted to tackle, say, 1991 through 1992, uh, you would be looking at 10 films. <laughs> Hong Kong, baby.
2: Yeah. Which is insane. Cause I mean, he doesn't just direct films. He produces, he's incredibly prolific or was through this period, at least like, and he was a producer who's known to, Get end up as an uncredited director because he can't leave his hands <laughs> off. He just kind of ends up just doing a lot of stuff.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that probably about wraps it. We don't want to keep our esteemed guest too damn long. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, we got out under ninety minutes with Jack here, which is a blessed miracle. But uh, you know, we are. I can keep going.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can do more. I
1: can do it. Uh, we are. We're going to move on to our. our beloved put over segment and uh you know maybe maybe sean doesn't want to uh, deal with this who knows but uh unlike steve i you know i'm respectful of our guests so i'm not going to just throw it on him blindly first and foremost but i'm going to in fact go to our regulars uh so i'm going to go to sean glennis uh what do you have to put over for us this week
0: um i am going to pick i've been going through. Uh a bunch of films from 1986. And uh, the best one, my favorite one so far is uh, Nobuhiko uh, Obayashi's His Motorbike, Her Island, um, which is a uh, romance movie about riding motorcycles. And um, it is a very uh, jubilant film uh, just about like young romance, but also uh, the way that uh, Obayashi plays with um, memory within his form is is a, a
1: true delight. His motorbike, her island. Alright, we got that. Uh, Jack, how about you?
2: I'm going to stay somewhat on theme and recommend the movie I literally just finished before we started this podcast, which is uh, Sammo Hung's Pedicab Driver from 1989. Uh, it's, it's a Sammo Hung movie. It's got a bunch of incredible fight sequences. There's a fight between him and Lau Garlung that is Oh, it's, it's just one of the best that you'll see anywhere. So, um, it's just a wild kind of comic kung fu movie um, with just some incredible set pieces. So, do seek that one out.
1: Uh, we will seek that one out. May I'm going to put over a, a movie I just stumbled on earlier this week that is uh, not good, but very... <laughs> Still worth watching because it is just bizarre. Uh, it's called The Wrong Guys. This is a movie that stars uh, various comedians of, of the era. This came out uh, in 1988 and, and stars Richard Lewis, Richard Belzer, Louis Anderson, and Tim Thomerson, uh, an Opvac favorite, as a, a group of, like, Boy Scouts who decide to have a reunion and are mistaken for FBI agents by a, a villainous uh, John Goodman who's trying to kill them the entire time. Uh, this this is a, a very strange and very poorly made movie uh, distributed by uh, uh, Roger Corman. Um, yeah, it's a fucking huge mess, but uh, just watching all these comedians who are not playing themselves but are, are for some reason playing characters that just share their names... Uh, because presumably they couldn't be asked to uh, learn a character name. Uh, But that kind of gives you an idea of what this is. It's, It's really ropey. It's a huge mess, but man, it's it's fascinating to see how I, I would have had no idea this existed and uh
2: that that already sounds amazing cuz aren't two of them named
1: Richard? Uh, well, Richard Belzer's character is named Bells. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, damn, they're wily. They got around yeah, us. That
1: clears things up. Uh it, it's just a a strange thing, a very strange. Uh, I'd recommend it. It's on Tubi for free, so you don't have to spend any of your hard-earned money to watch this junk. But throw it onto the background, and uh, you know, get a little slackjawed because it's gonna—it's gonna astonish you. Uh, Jake, how about you?
3: Yeah, I'm gonna recommend a, a modern uh, foray into cinema going uh, with a new film called Pig. This is the debut film from a man named uh, Michael Sinarski, and uh, it stars one Nicolas Cage as a recluse who lives in the mountains of the Pacific Northwest, where his only company is his truffle pig, whom he uses to find truffles with and cook delicious foods. Uh, and then one day, his pig is kidnapped and he sets out on a journey to uh, reclaim his pig. And with those ingredients and knowing Nicolas Cage's history as being crazy, man, uh, one might think, oh, this is just going to be a bizarre revenge picture. But the film actually does not become that at all. And it actually turns into something very, very somber and and very uh, pleasant, I would say. But um, it maybe contains like one of the top five Nicolas Cage uh, performances I've ever seen um, I'm not uh, exaggerating at all. Are I think you counting
0: he, uh, Nick Coppola performances in that?
3: It, excuse <laughs> me. Yeah, I'm talking. Um, and uh, I, he's, it's, he's tremendous in it. And uh, it's, the film is really just kind of disarming in how, uh, how surprising it is. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I don't want to say too much about it. Go see Pig. It is the best film of the year so far.
0: So there's two new movies about truffle hunting.
3: What's the other one?
0: The Truffle Hunters.
3: They're, oh. Never heard of this. It's
0: a wild time for, truff- for truffle hunters.
2: <laughs>
3: it's it's about time they got on their map. <laughs> the map. The truffles eight guys. All right, it's here. But yeah, go see Pig. Uh, it's it's great. Adam, I think you in particular would love it.
1: Uh, I will seek that out. I will seek that out. I'm I'm quite interested, as much as Nicholas Cage is is disappointed in recent years. Uh, Well, uh, we also have the new and improved Sean. Uh, Do you care to participate in this exercise? If not, uh, feel free to decline. But if you have anything in mind, uh, let let our listeners know. Uh, Sure. I'll uh,
4: recommend the thing I watched just before uh, we started recording here, which is uh, the uh, Bob Dylan concert film Shadow Kingdom, which is my favorite film of the year so far. And it uh, has nothing to do with truffle hunting at all. But it does have uh, Bob hanging out with his band uh, in a very smoky, film noir, kind of Howard Hawksish black black-and-white cafe, singing a bunch of old songs, and he sounds incredible for being 80 years old. And it's, uh, it's terrific. It's directed by Alma Harrell, who uh, directed a film called Honey Boy, which I haven't seen, but I remember people talking about a few years ago, and uh, it's great. What is that on? Uh it's on uh some something called Veeps, which I've never heard of. Oh, okay. but it's I like a, a live streaming thing. Uh it's uh streaming for another forty-eight hours, I think, and then it'll be uh I don't know if it's gonna get an official release or if it's just gonna be in, in extra eagle. Yeah. Yeah. But uh it's it's terrific. It's it's uh it's only an hour long, but I'd say it's well worth the uh the twenty five bucks it costs to, to stream it. But I'm a huge Dylan fan, and I've been on a insane <laughs> Dylan pick for the last two months. So, uh, well, you your are. mileage may vary.
1: While I have you here, let's uh, wrap up your obligations for the evening. Uh, where Where do people find you online, sir? Um, on the uh, on the Twitter at the end of cinema. Uh,
4: I haven't been writing a lot, but when I do, it's usually at uh, uh, movie or uh, I have a medium site called the Chinese Cinema. And also, you, uh, you should all buy the uh, upcoming Criterion edition of Johnny Toast Throwdown, which uh, I heard you all talk about on this
1: podcast a few weeks ago, uh,
4: and you, you can read me in the booklet for that.
1: Ooh, thrilling. Well, I appreciate you making the time for us. Uh, unfortunately, the next three episodes will not feature uh, such knowledgeable guests, but uh, we will make do. Uh, Jake I'm going to go back to you uh, where are the people going to find you online
3: yeah you can find me on uh, Twitter Letterbox, Letterboxd uh, basically on all things as at Jake Tropila J-A-K-E-T-R-O-P-I-L-A hit me up there
1: uh, other Sean where are they
0: going to find you uh you can listen to uh my podcast uh wiseman podcast it's much better than this thing uh but i'm glad that you listen all the way through to get this recommendation and
1: we still host that it's it's it's
4: our property uh
0: but yeah uh we have um our fourth episode uh coming out um it'll be out before this uh well before this comes out but um yeah, there's there's plenty there to
1: uh, to dive into. Uh, Jack, where are they going to find you? Uh,
2: you can you can find me on uh, Twitter. Uh, I'm at real Jack or E A L J A C K E A S O N. I may be posting access uh, to some of these movies we've been discussing in the near future, so that might be worth following. me for. but you should probably just follow follow Sean Gilman because he's actually smart. <laughs>
4: I don't. I don't send out links to movies, though. So
2: <laughs> in between us, we're a formidable pair. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: fortunately I, I'm not going to dilute any of this intelligence or links by being online myself. So you, you can skip that. If, if you really need to get a hold of me, you could always uh, email the podcast at optimismvaccine at gmail uh, We we will ask you for a favor, though. You know, uh, we we have a couple things here uh, in the description the podcast you're listening to you're going to see a couple links one of them will take you to itunes where you could rate and review us uh, the more you do that if we get some five-star reviews it's going to bump our visibility it's going to make it easier for us to uh, make more content for you folks uh beyond that we are patreon supported podcasts also a link in there uh you know we we depend on it we we uh, don't make a profit on this rest assured but uh you know it's not free it helps. Uh, every little bit helps. So uh, we appreciate all our patrons. If you get at a certain level, like Ryan, like Dustin, like Paula, you get your name right out on air. Uh, you know, if you donate a certain amount, you can even tell us what to do a podcast on. We're, we're that flexible. Uh, Steve is still uh, mailing out uh, DVDs from his collection, by the way, too, to all uh, patrons. Uh, so there you go. Within the continental United States, by the way. I don't think you ever... <laughs> I don't think you ever put that disclaimer on early. That's gonna be a
0: huge bummer to uh, those in uh, outside the continental U.S. Like uh, you know, uh,
1: a good half our patrons are from Norway. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, yeah, fortunately, I, I think they've been understanding. And eh, that Steve may not have initially mentioned it, but uh, uh, they're kind enough to, to realize that uh, that's probably a, an exorbitant expense. So. Uh, there we are. Uh, I think that's about it, folks. Uh, uh, beyond that, I, I'm just going to kick to Jake for the last word. You
3: will believe a monk
1: can fly.